Okay, people are going to be kind of coming in, but uh, we're going to try and run this on time. Uh, so it's my pleasure. These are two what we call flash talks uh, for this section of the day. First, we're going to hear from Alyssa Rosenberg, who is the cultural columnist for the Washington Post opinion section, where she leads special, proje special projects on subjects ranging from the depiction of police and pop culture to the making of Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's The Vietnam War, which is... We'll have to talk about that later. That's very fascinating. Uh, she founded the culture and sports section at Think Progress, covered federal pay and personnel executive, personnel executive policy for the government executive, and was the fact checker for the National Journal. She lives in D.C. with her husband, and I guarantee, I, this is true, I can ask her anything about Game of Thrones, and she'll know the answer. So please welcome Alyssa Rosenberg. Thank you all so much for having me. I know I'm supposed to be sort of the light after lunch entertainment, so I figured with this crowd that meant telling a story about government overregulation. <laughs> um, what I wanted to talk about today was the subject of a year-long project that I spent most of 2015 working on. And that is the story of how police departments in Hollywood became sort of interdependent and the impact that I think that that has had on our understanding of what policing is and ought to be and the gap between that perception and the reality of police work. And so I wanted to start with a little bit of history. Um, I assume most of you don't know very much about movie theaters in the 19-teens, um, but for if there's anyone in the crowd who's an expert, I of course defer to you. But when we think about Hollywood, most people here probably think of it as a fairly freewheeling industry. It's out in California, sort of does what it wants. You know, obviously it makes sense that filmmakers are protected by the First Amendment, right? Is that generally where we come down on the industry? So it wasn't always like that. In 1908, George McClellan, who's then uh, mayor of New York City, shuts down all of the city's movie theaters um, sort of on the grounds that they promote vice and crime. And this leads to the industry understanding that it's very much threatened and that it has to self-regulate. And things get worse for the entertainment industry for a while. Um, in 1910, and I'm actually going to quote from this because I think it's hilarious, the International Association of Chiefs of Police adopt a resolution condemning the movie business because, and I quote, the police are sometimes made to appear ridiculous. <laughs> And in 1915, the Supreme Court hands down a decision that says that movie censorship doesn't violate either the First Amendment or the Commerce Clause on the grounds that the movies are simply too powerful not to be regulated. And this ruling lasts until the 1950s. So for a long time, you know, a critical period in the movie industry's development and the pop culture industry's development more broadly, Filmmakers are operating without the protection of the First Amendment, which is probably a fairly hard state of affairs for all of us to imagine. Um, and so it's an interesting inflection point for both the movie industry, which at this point is sort of the stand-in for the entertainment business more broadly, and for the police themselves, because the police have the power to regulate the movies, but they don't necessarily how to know how to tell stories. And they recognize that the movie business is very good at telling stories. In fact, this is the basis for regulation going all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so what happens is these, you know, these two industries start to collaborate. The entertainment industry decides to collaborate with the police because they need to. You know, they need to guarantee that their products are going to pass the censor boards that were set up in multiple cities around the country. And you know, they want to be able to get permits to film. They'd like to be able to use equipment, et cetera. 
And the police recognize that they have this unique opportunity to influence the stories that Hollywood is telling. Now, how many of you have seen Dragnet in some iteration? Who knows where Dragnet comes from? Any ideas? So Dragnet is the creation of this actor called Jack Webb, who is working with an LAPD um, technical advisor named Marty Wynn. And he got the idea that he could present a show that would be more authentic. It would be drawn from sort of actual case files. It would present real issues. And more importantly, he could work out a deal with the LAPD where he wouldn't have to worry about anything getting censored. And he would get access to police equipment. He would get access to off-duty cops for as extras. And he would be able to get permits to shoot wherever he wanted in LA, which can be difficult. And so he strikes a deal with uh, with uh, Captain William Parker, who's then running the LAPD, that essentially allows all of the Dragnet scripts to get censored prior to publication. So, you know, they know going into shooting that the LAPD is not going to have a problem with anything. They get all of these benefits that allow them to keep the show very cheap, which then as now is a way to keep your show on the air for a very long time. Not everybody gets to be Game of Thrones and spend $10 million on an episode. And so he forges this incredibly productive partnership with the LAPD. And, you know, he gets all of these obvious tangible benefits. And the LAPD gets a show that is, you know, if not dramatically, incredibly exciting, is fairly compelling. Joe Friday is a reasonably interesting cop character. And that sells the LAPD as the place that is, you know, does scientific policing, is, among other things, sympathetic to immigrant communities. There are episodes where Webb speaks substantial amounts of Spanish um, in cases where he's investigating crimes in Latino communities. They're sensitive to civil rights. You have an episode where a young cop shoots somebody, and Webb spends a bunch of the episode talking about how, you know, it's tragic that they're in that circumstance. The guy probably did the right thing. It's annoying that Internal Affairs has to review it, but, you know, good cops aren't afraid to be investigated. And so this is just a fabulous piece of propaganda for the LAPD. And other people recognize it. The California Highway Patrol actually demands that, you know, they go out and get me a show like Dragnet. Um, and J. Edgar Hoover, being J. Edgar Hoover, also gets in on the act, and the result is the FBI, which is the most boring show about law enforcement ever. I cannot recommend it any, under any circumstances. I made it through about four or five episodes for this project, and basically, I mean, that, that was really all I could take, and I have a high pain threshold for these sorts of things. So you have you know, these shows that are coming out in direct collaboration with law enforcement agencies. And then you start to get sort of a new wave of series. Um, someone like Aaron Spelling. Did anyone watch The Mod Squad? OK, so The Mod Squad is supposed to be a direct counter to something like Dragnet. But Spelling, who was executive producing tons of shows, also collaborated very closely with the LAPD on SWAT. Now, SWAT comes out very shortly after the LAPD has introduced the idea of a special weapons and tactical unit. All of the characters on SWAT are former Vietnam veterans. And you know that's a show that, despite Spelling's pretensions to sort of undo the squareness of Jack Webb, becomes an unbelievably effective piece of propaganda for a new kind of policing that itself got a huge publicity boost during uh, the Patty Hearst stakeout because the SWAT teams became the stars of that sort of media event. And you also get something like Cops, which has been running for you know 
30 odd years at the, since 1989. I'm, I'm a critic, I'm not good at math. But you know, something like COPS is an incredibly direct collaboration and it doesn't even come with the veneer of sort of a fictional overview, right? These aren't, you know, these aren't police stories that have been massaged by Hollywood storytellers. These are cameramen getting in the car with actual police officers and doing ride-alongs. And part of what's amazing about COPS is that the criminals uh, or at least the people who are arrested by the police officers, let me be very clear about that. 90% of them sign release forms, allowing themselves to be, their real faces to be shown unblurred on air. And so you, Cops is the show where you have this just perfect amalgamation of the entertainment industry being willing to just show verbatim what cops do as entertainment, cops being willing to accept the entertainment industry into their squad cars and interrogation rooms, and the people who, are they, who they are arresting, you know, agreeing to star as criminals as themselves. So you have this amazing synchronicity um, that's been very commercially successful for Hollywood. Cop shows, are, cop shows and cop movies are one of the most enduring genres there are out there. I mean, if you've, maybe you've watched more shows about doctors, but probably not. Um, but I think it's worth thinking about the impact that these kinds of stories have, not just on civilians, but on the police. And I wanted to talk about sort of two areas where I think this is true. Um, those of you who have watched Dragnet, maybe even Starsky and Hutch, have a sense of how police shootings used to be depicted in pop culture. And there was a really clear pattern to this in Dragnet, in Naked City, all of these early stories. Basically what happens is that a cop shoots someone, and even if they're clearly right, they're immensely regretful about it. There's a sense that you know, they did the right thing, they got the right person, they had no other choice, but taking human life is still an enormous waste. And it's sad, and they understand that a bureaucracy has to review it. Uh, Starsky and Hutch even did an episode that I think is really fascinating to watch, where Starsky shoots a teenager, and the way that it's shot in the episode, you can't tell if the kid had a gun or not. And they go back and sort of replay it for you a couple of times. And it turns out he was right. The kid did have a gun, whether he was raising his hands to surrender or whether he was lowering them to shoot, remains somewhat ambiguous. But still, this is treated with unbelievable moral gravity. And there's room for uncertainty, which I think is part of what's really striking about these stories, right? You know, we trust these cops because we've spent a lot of time with them in these fictional stories. So we have a pretty good sense of who they are as people, you know, but there is th there's that willingness to admit doubt. And to say, you know, this is something that should be investigated. It's not to be taken lightly. You know, this, being investigated in this follow-up is sort of part of the responsibility of the job. And that starts to change. And it starts to change in particular um, when Hollywood discovers the drug war. And the ground zero for a lot of this is Dirty Harry, which I presume everyone here has seen. Everyone here has seen Dirty Harry? OK. And so, you know. Dirty Harry is the movie that really kicks us off because you see a fictional police officer who feels absolutely no doubt about shooting people and in fact is convinced that executing people is an appropriate and entirely founded part of his job. His supervisors argue back with him, back and forth with him about this. You know, this is a major point of tension in the movie that the brass won't let him do his job. But the gravity of that has really shifted, right? It's no longer his superiors doing what they're supposed to do and helping him be a good cop. They're holding him back. And then once the sort of action blockbuster kicks off, police stories shift from being 
contest between cops and sort of lower level criminals to cops versus criminal masterminds who are unbelievably violent, um, who are willing to do absolutely anything to achieve their ends, and who, like the people that Dirty Harry pursued, but on a grander scale, absolutely need to be executed. And so, I mean, this is sort of a first foundational element of this, right? That criminals are people who need to be killed. There's no other option. They're hyper-violent. They cannot be stopped or arrested in any other way. The second part of that is because a good action shootout does not involve a lot of civilian casualties, we see a version of police officers who always shoot straight, who are incredible marksmen under pressure, who feel very little fear. And in fact, what you start to see, um, people here have probably seen Lethal Weapon, Bad Boys, Bad Boys 2, um, the trope starts to be that the cop who shoots his gun is not the problem. The problem is the cop who's unwilling or afraid to shoot. And so, theoretically, these are stories that make cops look really good on some level, right? I mean, they're unbelievably brave. They're going up against people who have no consciences, who have access to superior firepower, who are willing to do just large-scale damage to the communities where they operate. They are expert marksmen. They always shoot straight. They never miss. They never hit anyone who they shouldn't hit. Um, and they're cool in the act, you know? It's, they're not afraid. They are confident, they're calm. And so theoretically, this is, you know, this is a great heroic image of policing, right? It bears no resemblance to what we know actually happens when police officers discharge their weapons, and it set up, sets up expectations that ordinary cops can't possibly meet. And so you know, this is an image that Hollywood has created effectively as a subsidy to police departments that actually is not useful to individual cops at all, and it certainly is not useful to the people who end up dead. The second area where I think this is really important to look at is um, in the depictions of scientific policing. And I assume most of you have heard of the so-called CSI effect, the idea that jury's expectations for the evidence that police officers can gather has become so high that in certain cases it's difficult to secure convictions. Believe it or not, this is something that affects cops too. Um, and to go back a minute, shows like Dragnet and the FBI were intended to make policing look scientific and reliable. And that makes sense, right? I mean, you want it to help people understand something like fingerprinting, material evidence, et cetera. But CSI comes along and starts to present police science, not as science, but effectively as magic. And again, this is something that makes police officers look hyper-competent, intelligent, on the cutting edge of science, but it has nothing to do with the actual limitations of what police science can achieve. And so not only do we end up with a situation where juries have wildly inflated expectations for what the police can prove, there's a, stu a very interesting study by a professor from the University of Richmond that has found that individual police officers themselves have succumbed to have inflated expectations for what their crime labs can produce. So again, we have this sort of valorization that is a fundamental mismatch with the actual functioning and needs of the criminal justice system. And so I don't necessarily come here with a solution to any of this today, but I do think this raises an important set of questions. You know, for anyone concerned with 
criminal justice to consider because this is a situation that's born out of government overregulation. You know, government regulation effectively creates the symbiosis between the entertainment industry and police departments and has resulted in something that is supposed to be an enormous boost to policing's image, but that actually sets a trap not just for police officers, but for the people they're supposed to be protecting. I figure we probably just want to talk about cop shows for the next 10 minutes, so I will let people do that, but I figured we could kickstart things that way. I will, also answer, I will also answer questions about Game of Thrones if that's what it comes down to. It's not that big in here. Sure. Sure. It's like there's this hyper-real thing out there, and we get confused between reality and that. Well, I think one thing that's important to note about all of this is that the collaborations between police departments and individual police officers and police shows or movies are often presented as proof that these shows are more authentic, that they're more real. You know, The Naked City opens with, you know, you know, these are, there are a thousand stories in The Naked City, this is one of them. Dragnet, you know, presents itself as from the actual files of the LAPD. You know, something like The Wire is completely beloved because it is authentic, and I actually think that's a show where generally it is, but, you know, that collaboration is intended to enhance that claim to reality and sort of conflate it with hyper-reality. Sorry, I cut you off. You had an actual question. <laughs> Well, and I think one of the answers is sort of how do you pick your technical advisors? Does anyone here watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Okay, so Brooklyn Nine-Nine is this incredibly funny Fox show about a Brooklyn police precinct with a black gay captain who's dealt with this history of discrimination in the NYPD. And they have an advisor, but he's an interesting guy. He actually ran for a while the NYPD's um, study, which is required to do every year under a consent decree, of the number of times that officers unholster their weapons and what happens and what they use them for. And so he was someone who was coming in and saying, you know, you have these characters who are obsessed with cop action movies. Cops don't actually pull their weapons that often. You know, he, this was a guy who's, you know, he went to Harvard, he studied criminal justice. And so, you know, he was, he's a real New York City cop. He recently retired, but he was coming in with a very different perspective on what it was important to get across. And the reason that he was chosen as, as an advisor for the show is because he was a roommate of someone who was helping to run the show. So that's sort of just good luck for them. But, you know, choosing the right advisor, I think, probably matters a lot. And that's not necessarily a policy solution, but it's a creative one. There are a million people there. You in the back, you have been raising your hand for a while. Sure. Did they do it? Huh. Because the interesting thing is, I 
Right, it's not tracked, right. Uh, thank you so much, and can I please talk to you afterwards because I'm working on a book proposal about all of this and would like to pick your brain for about 15 hours, if that's okay. <laughs> I, will, I will find you right after. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Right here in the middle? I won't. I've got a uh, two-part question. First part, what do you think of the uh, more recent cop shows like True Detective on HBO that kind of portray officers as much more morally conflicted kind of dark characters who, in fact, don't always get their man and I think uh, substantially will still exist when the show ends? Uh, that's my first question. Then my second part of my question is who sits on the uh, Iron Throne at the end of next season? I would say that's not actually a new phenomenon. I don't know if anyone here has read Joseph Wambaugh's police novels, but they are unbelievably good. He actually started writing novels while a detective sergeant with the LAPD, wrote his first book without getting permission from the department and thought it would be just sort of a minor print run. And then uh, the Book of the Month Club picked it as the main selection, and he got into an enormous amount of trouble with the department. Um, but he was a real champion for the idea that police stories should be psychologically realistic, that they should present the strain of the job, they should be willing to deal with things like divorce, alcoholism, even suicide, um, that they should be sort of psychologically interested. And so his first book, The New Centurions, which I, I don't understand how it's not a major classic of American literature because it's fabulous, is about three members of an LAPD training class you know, um, starting with their time in the academy and revisiting them every August until the Watts riots. Um, so it's fabulous. New Centurions, Joseph Wambaugh, hugely recommend it. But Wambaugh spent a lot of time fighting for the idea that, you know, these stories would be helpful both to cops and civilians. And he had an anthology show on ABC called Police Story and actually ended up quitting the show because he was literally told by an executive, just no more crying cops, we can't deal with it. Um, and so, you know, that, that psychological realism is something that kind of creeps through every now and again. And I would say often in these sort of prestige projects like The Wire, which absolutely fits that model, True Detective to sort of a lesser extent, just because that show is so Baroque um, in certain terms. but. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that artists and cops, to a certain extent, have been fighting for for a long time, um, and that has not always gotten a receptive hearing. In terms of who sits on the Iron Throne, um, my personal theory is that Danny wins the throne, goes mad, John has to kill her, and it's the ultimate tragedy. <laughs> Thank you, and I appreciate your writings. Um, having grown up in Baltimore, I appreciated The Wire. I appreciated Homicide. I mean, truly life on the street in Baltimore. But I've also worked with police and others in, in my profession. What do you think um, is the impact that I'm going to, because I, I think about this book since my movies you've listed, that they can prevent tr a true picture. I think Homicide in the Street did a good job. I think The Wire did a good job. I think the other book you mentioned, um, movie, yeah, yeah. 
But what do you think, and I'm going to bring it up to today, um, because I've, of my profession, I'm not a cop, but what impact is this having on today's criminal justice system, the relationship with the communities, the race issue, the cultural issue? I mean, crime is pretty bad in Baltimore. Pretty bad. Runs a second to corruption in Chicago. So how would you adjust that, or can you, or is there an answer? And, and most police don't want to put all that. Even the TV show, I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. One of the things that I think is Thank you. challenging is that police stories are often very narrowly focused on the police, right? They're not about the environments in which they work or from which crime emerges. Um, they, you know, they're not about the criminal justice system and how, you know, it's functioning beyond the arrest for the most part. And, and yeah, and they're not very interested in what comes after, right? I mean, I would also say, you know, most cop shows aren't very interested in crime victims. Um, and so, you know, part of that is that the rhythm of a police procedural is just unbelievably narratively satisfying, right? You know, you see a crime committed or you learn that a crime has been committed a person who is meant to make you feel safe comes in, investigates, finds the right person, and you feel secure again. And that narrative structure is difficult to replicate in other areas, especially because a lot of what happens in the criminal justice system is not satisfying. I mean, you know, part of what was very difficult about the big crime wave that began in the 60s and 70s is that clearance rates started to drop. And so not only do you have more crimes being committed, you have fewer crimes being solved, which makes everyone feel more insecure. And so, you know, it is difficult to find the narrative forms that allow us to tell the stories that we need about the rest of, about the true life cycle of the criminal justice process. And that's not political, it's not conservative, it's not liberal, but it is the bias of storytelling and I think it's really difficult. All right, I am supposed to surrender the podium. I would love to talk to you guys all day, so maybe the kind folks here will be kind, nice enough to have me back at some point, but thank you all very much. Next up, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Amy Bach. She is the executive director and president of Measures for Justice since 2011. She founded the organization as a follow-up to her acclaimed book, Ordinary Injustice, How America Holds Court, which I think is one of the finest criminal justice books ever written, so I highly suggest it. It won the 2010 Robert F. Kennedy Book Award, and for her work on that, she received a Soros Media Fellowship, a Jake Anthony Lucas Citation, and a Radcliffe Fellowship at Harvard University. She was a Knight Foundation Journalism Fellow at Yale Law School and a graduate of Stanford Law School. Amy Bach. Great. Thank you so much uh, for having me here today. It is a total pleasure. What I'd like to do today is to introduce you to this organization that um, I founded in 2011 based on this book that, that he mentioned. Um, the book um, is about different communities where people turn a blind eye to problems that they can't quantify or see. So um, the first story begins in Quitman County, Mississippi, which is about an hour and a half south of Memphis. Um, there's a court clerk there, and her name is Brenda Wiggs. 
She has a helmet of white hair, and she sits sort of in the back room. And uh, she had all of these cases that were like the names of cases that were pasted above her desk to the side of the wall. And I said, what are these cases? And she said, these are cases that never go to court. By law in Mississippi, the prosecutor has to bring everything to grand jury. And the prosecutor can say, you know what? This is not a great case. Don't prosecute. Um, or the prosecutor can say, uh, you know, this one I, I really think we need to take, but it's, it's the people who have to decide. And as he said, you know, we had grand jury last week. He didn't present any of these cases. So I just take this list of cases and I bring it down and then I put up another one. So I said, can I have this list and see um, what the cases are? So I started investigating these cases on this list. And um, one of them involved a woman named Sharon. She had been beaten up under a bridge by her boyfriend with a tire iron um, so badly that she had been in the hospital for three days. There were pictures of her with, you know, her face bloodied. Her body was all bruised. And uh, her niece and her daughter, who I think were five and seven, were inside the locked car watching her boyfriend beat them up, beat her up. Um, so I went back to Miss Wiggs and I said, Miss Wiggs, why do you think this case wasn't prosecuted? And she said, wait, let me think about this. And she said, let me look in the computer. And she looks back in the computer and she says, wow. And then she looks back in these big bound volumes. They're, um, like these, you know, they have gold embossed lettering on the back and they're in the back hutch in the, in the, uh, in the office. And she comes back and she said, the prosecutor hasn't prosecuted a domestic violence case in 21 years. And so then I went to um, the prosecutor and I said, do you realize it's been 21 years? And he said, has it been that long? Now, this is really the, cooks, the crooks of the problem that Measures for Justice is trying to address, the fact that there's no national infrastructure for measurement in criminal justice. If we can't see problems, how are we supposed to fix them? So I founded the organization with this in mind. And so here's what we do. We collect and we analyze and we compare data on the whole system from beginning to end, from arrest to post-conviction. Not just one part of the system like prosecutors, but public defenders, uh, judges, victims, defendants, everything. And we measure county by county. Why do we measure on the county level? Because that's where justice happens. In 3,000 counties, each with its own justice system. Uh, our, our goal is to measure actually every county in the United States. We launched in um, May this year, and um, you can uh, look at our data. We have now 380 counties, which is 10% of the US. Um, but to make this happen, to make this data come to life, it took about five years. We were founded in 2011, and we put together a data council. And these were people who were experts in court data, race, prosecution, and engine status. And actually, it is like the biggest honor that Jim Parsons, who's the director of the Vera Institute. Jim, would you just, just, give, just do your hand to that? Yeah, so that's him, Jim. Okay, so Jim was on the original data council, all right? And so since then, we've had established two other advisory boards. But basically, we got a bunch of people in a room in Rochester, New York, where Measures for Justice is based. And we said, what would you measure? How would you do it? You know, And um, everyone basically agreed on four things. And the things were, one, we had to invent measures that would go across jurisdictions 
and yield results for everybody to see, that the measures had to be neutral in the sense that they had to be in language, in terms that no one would think that there was an inherent bias in the measure. They had to go from arrest to post-conviction three. And four, they had to be made with what data we thought we could find. And at that time, we really didn't know what data was out there. So after a lot of work and a lot of meetings and people working from all corners of the system, we settled on 32 measures. And all of the measures go to one of three goals. That's public safety, fairness, and fiscal responsibility. Um, and when we created these measures, we started going county to county to show people the measures. And yet we also started doing is, um, is, is trying to collect all of the data. So we started in our first state was actually Wisconsin. And we started there because they had um, a, a robust statewide court system, um, court data system. And so we got that. And then we started going county to county to get prosecutor and sheriff data. And we also tried to get the public defender data, but we did not. And one of the people we met in Wisconsin was a man named Christian Gossett. Now, he lives in Winnebago County. Um, does anybody know Winnebago County in Wisconsin? Is there anybody who knows? No, I don't. A little bit? Wow. OK. Well, one thing I know, I don't know that much about it, but I know that Oshkosh Bagosh is based there. In fact, um, Christian, actually, the prosecutor, he's a prosecutor, and he works out of the old Oshkosh factory. Um, besides that, um, it's pretty small. And um, he had been the prosecutor there for eight years. And he came in on the heels of an extremely corrupt agency. The former prosecutor was actually, or still is, in prison for uh, fraud. So he came in, and his whole thing was he's going to come in on an agenda of honesty and transparency. And he'd been trying really hard to show that he's turning around his office and doing everything for what? The people, right? Because it's all about the people. So he needed data to show the people he works with, like his underlings and the sheriffs and the judges and the public defenders, that they need to change things. So he was, he was really data hungry. But the problem is he had no data to show that things needed to change. So what he would do is every Christmas Eve to New Year's, he would do this, his own data analysis. And so when we walk into his office, he has all of these um, spreadsheets all over tables. And he's so excited to show us. And he says, I've been doing this for eight years. And I have this one measure. I can't wait to show it to you. And he said, how many measures do you have? And we said, well, we have 32. We have a 20, you know, five or something populated. But the really great thing about our measures is not only that you can see things you've never seen before, but there's this filter function. You can filter things by race, sex, age, indigent status type of crime. And you can see disparities, like how you're treating people who, um, in the system who you um, are, are essentially representing. And he was really surprised that we had this data. And um, he wanted to see as much as possible. So we showed him a measure about bail um, that demonstrated something interesting in his tiny county. 
And so this is what we essentially showed him. So this is failure to pay low monetary bail. So it, this shows that in his little county, 40% of defendants who failed to pay bail had set bail, had bail set for $500 or less. In other words, people are in jail, 40% of the people in his jail were there for under $500 bail. Most people, if they were in jail for $500, could find someone to give them $500. And then he looked deep in and saw actually it wasn't $500. They were actually there on $300 bail, okay? So these people just didn't have $300. So it meant that there were a lot of poor people um, in jail who were there because they were poor. And we know this because he looked into these cases. And um, we, we learned something else interesting about Christian, which is that he grew up poor, and he really didn't want people punished. So in addition, so he, we showed him this. And these are the filters. He started looking, you know, do he want to look at it unfiltered by race, by sex, by age? He decided he wanted to look at it unfiltered. And, um, you know, and he realized with, with this, for example, he could open this and he could show the people that he worked with who might not know anything about measures or data, and there would be definitions, and everything would be very clearly explained to him. It would show the measure, it would show the calculation, and then um, he started to compare himself to other counties. So here you can see that A, which is the center, is Winnebago County. And you can see here that he puts 40% of the people um, in the jail for under $500 bail. And you can see that County B is Burnett. So in Burnett in the jail, 76% of the people in jail are there um, for under, um, for $500 bail or less. So um, it's not as bad as Dane, which is Madison, Wisconsin, that was under the state average, which was, I think, 32% um, at 29%. But this is the idea that for the first time, you can look across a whole state and begin to compare. Um, and, 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 um, and, and this really, in a public way, had never really been done before. And the cool thing about this for Christian was, as he said, like he has no data. He doesn't have a team of people who could do this for him. So he could print this out. He could create a link of it. And then down here, there's an enormous amount of contextual information. And the reason we did this is because when we shopped this around, we heard again and again from people is, you can't bad apple one part of the system. You can't shame anything. You have to put it in the context, because people want to know exactly you know, about nonviolent misdemeanor cases with monetary bail. They want to know about how many were there with bail reductions. They wanted to break the cases down. They wanted to see all sorts of information about population. Was it rural? Was it urban? They wanted to know um, exactly um, what kind of resources they are, how many, how many judges there are. There's only one judge um, in Burnett. Um, and there are six in Winnebago and, ten, and 17 in Dane and poverty indicators. So this all becomes, and, and there's also legal context about things about the state that are different than other states. So in case you wanted to compare Winnebago County to other counties in Pennsylvania or to counties in, um, in Florida or, um, uh, you know, there's, there, we did an enormous amount of research to show 
uh, how different states compare. And then the final thing is we put um, a lot of um, things, a lot of uh, 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 sort of disclaimers here that really say that this is a starting point. This is meant to be a conversation starter, uh, which explains how we define a case, explains that we're not make, saying anything about causation, that what we do is just descriptive. Anyway, so we gave this to him, and he basically begins to, uh, to, to use it to bring change. And he starts showing it around to the judges and to the, um, the people in his county, and he, they decide that he has to do a couple of things. One, he streamlines his office's intake process to reduce the number of days people are sitting in jail. And he really makes an effort to ensure that judges are able to release people on weekends and holidays if they want to. And all in all, this work maybe saves his county $45,000. More importantly, it helps a lot of poor people keep their jobs and their families intact. Now, Christian's an early adopter, and creating county-level comparisons and making it public like this in this way had never been done before. So it's not surprising that there are people out there that have been skeptical, and they always ask the same question. I can't tell you how many times people ask us, what is your agenda? And here's what I say, okay? Our agenda is public safety, and I'm going to pull up part of our website here. Um, this is our website. It cycles through counties. I encourage you to go on it. This is our agenda, public safety, fair process, and fiscal responsibility. We give you the data so that state and local leaders can make informed decisions. We do not tell you what the change should be. We don't prescribe the change. We're here to really help people succeed and give them what they need, and it's free. Now, our agenda, let's go back to that. Think of Ms. Wiggs, right? What was her agenda? She didn't really have one. She just wanted justice for the people she served. And Christian, he did what professionals in aviation or healthcare do when they see a problem. He put together a group of people, not to blame, but to figure out the why. He got ahead of the data, and he made changes that would have taken years to discover. And he's going to look great to his constituents as he reports back to the people that he saw a problem and to tell them he did right by them. So the pressure to be measured and transparent is on a lot of people's heads right now. And we're a little bit ahead of the curve in the fact that we've put out these six states. So I want to you know, basically, um, I'm here today, and our director of research, Gypsy Escobar, is here. There she is. And if you have questions about this, you can talk to us. You can ask Jim knows quite a lot, Jim Parsons from Vera Institute, who's here. And, you know, one day, if you need data or you need resources, something's being asked of you. We hope that we'll be here to, to, for you. Um, change is hard. It's not never easy, but just to be clear, we're here to help people succeed, and it's free. And um, we believe that it's catching on, and it's beginning effort. As I said, we've done six states, and that's 10% of the US, and we're hoping to complete 20 states by 2020. And our motto is no data, no change. So first we'll get the data part, and we hope the change comes as well.
Richard Jerome. You put, put up one of your 32 measures uh, on bail. Can you just give us a sense, a couple of other things that you're measuring? Sure. Um, uh, we have a measure about diversions, the percent of the people who get diverted. We have um, measures, um, what will be another? Yeah, go ahead, Gypsy. Um, so we're trying to measure um, everything from pre-trial to post-conviction. So we th have things on um, citations instead of arrest, um, on cases declined by prosecutors, uh, cases where the only charge was resisting arrest and that was referred by law enforcement to the prosecutor, um, uh, 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 pre-trial release, so uh, nonviolent uh, misdemeanors uh, released on ROR, um, uh, pre-trial diversion, uh, pre-trial release violations, case dismissals, attorney withdrawals, guilty pleas with an attorney, uh, sentencing, length of sentences, uh, you know. So everything from the trial process, the case processing, case disposition, and sentencing. And also the measures are all on the website, and you can print them out. Anything else? We do not get our funding from Vera Institute, but we would like to be funded by the Vera Institute. Um, um, no, we're funded by various in, um, um, organizations. Um, we're funded by google.org. We're funded um, by um, the MacArthur Foundation, um, the, um, uh, Arnold, um, and, um, and, 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 a, and a few others. It's all on our, on our website, yes, thanks. That's it. All right. Well, thank you so much.